The one time I let him go first, it happens. Forbes? Yeah, he was getting old and slow. You could put a live bomb in his hand and count ten before he'd drop it. I'll never forgive myself. Oh, this is fine. Some protection they sent me. An old man who walks right into it. And a weeper. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 131, continuing our Noir Month. What's our choice today, Cole? My selection for Noir Month is The Narrow Margin from 1952, directed by Richard Fleischer and starring two huge Lantern favorites, Charles McGraw and Marie Windsor. And that's along with Jacqueline White, David Clark, Peter Virgo, and Harry Harvey. It also boasts an Oscar-nominated screenplay from Earl Felton, who was a frequent partner of Richard Fleischer. It's about a cop who has to escort a gangster's wife who's planning to testify against the mob on a nail-biting train trip from Chicago to Los Angeles with assassins on her trail. One detective with a code is all that stands between her and a cement kimono. Does this tick all the noir bingo boxes? Oh, it sure does, especially as if it was written just for me. I should reiterate this spoiler alert, by the way. This one is probably a little less seen unfortunately, than some of the films that we usually discuss, and I don't want to ruin the fun twists and turns that this one takes. Watch it first. Because, unfortunately, I read about the big twist before I saw the film, and I wish I hadn't at this point, even though it's not, you know, life-changing, and it does unfold gradually. I think there's such a big payoff here that you need to watch it before you know about it. And I came to this one through the czar of noir himself, Mr. Eddie Muller, and his book Dark City Dames. Because Marie Windsor is one of the six dames profiled, and so in looking further into the films that I hadn't seen yet at that point, I moved on to his other book, Dark City. So if you haven't checked out either of those two, run, don't walk, get your copies. Yeah, just like it is for me, this is a special film for Eddie too, because in his very first Noir City Festival ever, it was the very first film that he programmed. All right, well, it kicks off with that RKO logo that we love so much. I love that radio tower. <laughs> it's great. It's always a good sign for me to see that RKO logo. It's probably the studio that we can regularly count on to get the most movie out of the least investment. And boy, did they ever get their money's worth out of this one. It was a commercial success. It was one of the few profitable films for RKO that year, and even more for me, I think, an artistic one. Yeah, I think it was their biggest moneymaker that year. This one is what I consider perfect film noir. It's down and dirty. It wastes no time. It confirms all my Hobbesian inclinations that life in film noir is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Yay! This movie does not mess around. Our previous selection, Laura, that might have had the glamour and a specific kind of sleaze that comes with kicking over rocks uptown, but this one has the thing that I think may be the most important characteristic of a good noir, the hard-boiled aspect of it. There is no substitute for the grimness and gravity that comes from life on these mean streets. The world weariness in every gesture, every flicked match... This bitter, resigned poetry that's in every barbed line of dialogue, especially that Marie Windsor delivers. If this had smell-o-vision, it would smell like flop houses and cigarettes and broken dreams. You hear that on the microphone? <laughs> that's me rubbing my hands at the prospect of getting into this one. I'm twirling my mustache over here. It really is like it was made just for me. We kick off with the sound of trains, fish in a barrel, coal. Entering the Chicago rail yards, quite possibly my favorite city on earth. I may be biased with my Midwest Great Plains upbringing, but I think Chicago is the perfect city for film noir. New York is obviously great, but there can sometimes be an anonymity that just comes with a city that size. Now that's perfect for some stories, but not all of them. 
Well, I think it's fascinating that we start there because you've got the history of Chicago crime, and then we transition into that modern post-war L.A. crime. Yeah, exactly. And Los Angeles is great, too. Quite obviously, film noir as we know it literally does not exist without Los Angeles. It's a graveyard for innumerable dreams. That backdrop is perfect for all the damaged souls that drift through those stories. Chicago, though, it does something better than either of those places for me. It makes it personal. It's not so large that it swallows everything up the same way New York does, and that lack of Hollywood glamour as a defining factor makes it more workaday and thoroughly relatable. Have you been to all of those cities? New York and L.A., definitely. I've only been through Chicago. I think I spent about three days there once, so I really haven't been able to see much of the city at all. So I can't wait to go together. Yeah, I've got so many cool places to show you. Based on what you know now, though, how do you rate them as noir world capitals? I absolutely see what you mean about Chicago. We get so many of those stories of the seamier side of growing up there that you just start off with a knock against you right away. And then it's nothing but people trying to scrabble over each other to make it to the top of the heap. So when are we going back? Do we have to pick up any uh, widows of gangland bosses at any point? <laughs> We would have to keep six feet between us, obviously, with the social distancing, so it might make it tough, but we will go as soon as possible. I think if Marie Windsor is in tow, we need to keep six feet away. I would break those rules for Marie Windsor. <laughs> Are there any other cities that you would throw into that mix right offhand? You know, also another thing that I like about this film is that we do travel in it, so we're seeing something of the Southwest a little bit too. And Richard Fleischer was a great person to tackle that assignment. Violent Saturday mm -hmm. is another of our favorites. And that really has a specific geographic feel. So it's neat to see these other corners of the world that you might not be thinking about, but the stories are just as sad. The only other place that I can think of right now, just because we did a mini episode on it, is Miami for some reason. Wondering what kind of stories would have come out of that period. And also Boise, Idaho, where I'm from. <laughs> Boise Noir. Definitely. I mentioned Boise only because being from there, there's something that Marie Windsor does that sets off the little pleasure alarms in my brain because she was a Utahan. So the way she pronounces measure and pleasure, I knew exactly where she was from. Well, I will stand on that glass floored observation deck in Sears Tower. And yes, I will always call it Sears Tower. You are the worst, by the way. Not the Sears Tower part, the standing on that deck. And shout it from there. I love Chicago. I love Chicago noir. Will you indulge me for a little second while I read you something? Oh, gosh. Yes. Go ahead. Hog butcher for the world. Tool maker. Stacker of wheat. Player with railroads and the nation's freight handler. Stormy. Husky, brawling, city of the big shoulders. They tell me you are wicked, and I believe them. For I have seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. And they tell me you are crooked, and I answer, yes, it is true, I have seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. And they tell me you are brutal, and my reply is, on the faces of women and children I have seen the marks of wanton hunger. And having answered so, I turn once more to those who sneer at this, my city, and I give them back the sneer and say to them, Come and show me another city with lifted head, singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning, flinging magnetic curses amid the toil of piling job on job. Here is a tall, bold slugger set vivid against the little soft cities. Fierce as a dog with tongue lapping for action, cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness. Bareheaded, shoveling, wrecking, planning, building, breaking, rebuilding. Under the smoke, dust all over his mouth, laughing with white teeth. Under the terrible burden of destiny, laughing as a young man laughs. Laughing even as an ignorant fighter laughs who has never lost a battle. Bragging and laughing that under his wrist is the pulse and under his ribs the heart of the people. Laughing laughing the stormy, husky, brawling laughter of youth, half-naked, sweating, proud to be hog-butcher, tool-maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and freight handler to the nation. Are you kidding me? Listen to that. 
That's got to be Sandberg, right? Yes. You don't think Chicago is a top-tier noir town? Come down here and say that to Carl Sandberg's face. Because he basically invented film noir, and this is how tough it is, with a poem in 1914. Call Northside 777, City That Never Sleeps, Nightmare Alley, Appointment with Danger. Chicago has a greatly impressive noir lineage and one that has a very particular regional flavor. God, I love Chicago. Why don't you just marry it then? (laughs) If it was legal, I probably would. (laughs) And we'll probably talk a lot about noir pedigree in this episode. Director Richard Fleischer, he knew his way around the dark end of the street. He was able to knock this out in about 13 to 15 days, two weeks, give or take. Contrast that with Laura, we just discussed, took about 10 weeks to make. And it shouldn't be taken that this was a cookie-cutter effort or full of shortcuts. It's a certain mixture of craftsmanship and chemistry and practice that makes him able to do this so quickly and so well. Each one of these notable examples of the genre, like The Narrow Margin, they have instantly recognizable set pieces, great dialogue, great fight choreography, tons of atmosphere. So quickly and inexpensively made does not necessarily equate to cheap or shoddy. Because I think you look at something like this and you realize that some people are just better, better craftsmen, better artists. So it doesn't matter how much time it took or did not take. There's just something that sets it apart and makes it special. It's like they could have made something fantastic in 10 minutes, better than it would have taken a year for anybody else to make. And Fleischer could do it all, too. He was equally at home with big-budget spectacle movies. He made Dr. Doolittle, for instance. He's an interesting counterpart, I think, to our previous director, Otto Priminger. They both had a period in their careers where they made some of the best films noir ever. In Fleischer's case, Trapped, Armored Car Robbery, and this. And then they went on to do other extremely varied projects after that. Because he's really interesting. He spanned the golden age of Hollywood, and up through American New Wave. His first feature was just in 1946. He made another of your favorites, Ten Rillington Place. Mm -hmm. And then up to Red Sonia, of all things. And he definitely sounds like he would have been maybe a little tough to contend with. I'm thinking about his autobiography, which apparently was all about settling some scores. (laughs) (laughs) The problems that he had with actors and writers and producers. It was called... Just tell me when to cry. (laughs) Allow me to get out my list for the airing of grievances. I've got one specifically with Howard Hughes, by the way. Oh, my God. I didn't realize this was actually made in 1950, but not released until 52. Because Howard Hughes loved it, but then apparently forgot about it. Not just loved it, but wanted to infinitely tinker with it and make it the way he wanted it made. Reshoot it with other stars. Keep making the same story. But he was crazy. Yeah, fortunately, he decided to give up the ghost on that one. And then not long after the narrow margin came out, he basically divested himself of all of his interest in RKO. But getting back to the film, you mentioned Laura as compare and contrast. The dialogue we have here is not the sort that Waldo Lidecker employed in Laura. We trade his clever and incisive put-downs for something more immediate, usually delivered through clenched teeth in this case. So long, quill dipped in venom, hello, verbal blunt instrument. It calls back to our previous episode again here. It's basically if insults were sash weights. (laughs) We hit the ground running, though, on these mean streets, and we get into this yellow cab, and it's just a marvel how there's no fat here at all. The first thing I wrote was, man, this thing flies. Yeah, and everything is flying toward the same bad end. There's an unmistakable message being conveyed even by those lonesome suitcases that are sent ahead on the train, and Forbes' dead cigar. Even the inanimate objects in this are imbued with an inescapable fatalistic bent. Another interesting thing for me coming back to this, because it had been a while, watching the credits, I was wondering, oh, is this film going to be dominated by women? Because we've got two prominent ones, one prominent man, and that's kind of unusual for a noir. Especially as the triangle's not exactly what we think it might be. Well, one of the points on that triangle, and our star here, is the granite-jawed Charles McGraw as Detective Brown. And we talked briefly in the last episode about what a great noir-leading man Dana Andrews was. Charles McGraw, though, he is noir royalty to me. How about you? 
Definitely. But when I was younger, not somebody I was so aware of. Mm. Well, he embodies exactly those qualities, I think, of the dark and complicated whole being more than the sum of its parts. I think here he is used so well. He's allowed to be so complex and interesting, not just a bruiser. Right. It's his first lead. And he could do it all, too. Detective, tough guy, loving husband, psychotic criminal. Do you have a favorite mode for him to be in? Would you rather see him as the good guy or the villain? Well, I think he's great as the villain, but I love him, again, as the more complicated, interesting human being. I really like the character that he played in Roadblock because you got to see yet another side of him. Somebody going on to a darker side for love. And here he also gets to be funny. You see him do everything. And I even love his uncredited early part in The Undying Monster where he looked like such a young, fresh man. When I was reading that early in his career he used to dance in nightclubs, I thought, gee, I can't really imagine that. And now I absolutely can. Sort of that Jimmy Cagney quality of being someone really light on his feet and versatile. And here in this film, we see that transition for him, the difficulty in the position that he's in. Early on, he's shot from below, making him seem kind of larger in life. And then as the film goes on, more at his level, more human, more overwhelmed. Well, I love to see him as a bad guy too, because he is goddamn terrifying. Absolutely. But you know in my heart that I cannot resist pulling for a man with a code. A guy that will not betray his principles when the chips are down, no matter how bleak his prospects or how tempting whatever they dangle in front of him. And he's honest about that temptation, which is why I think maybe his name is Brown here as opposed to black or white. I guess gray would have been too on the nose. Yeah. Well... To get into the movie proper, there is a conversation here between Brown and his partner Forbes that they have on their way to pick up Mrs. Neal, Marie Windsor, that sets expectations for us to either align with or to push back against a little. This whole bit about what kind of woman becomes a mob wife. Our protagonist, Brown, he's kind of an all-or-nothing guy. Having a code doesn't typically lend itself to shades of gray. It's clear what he thinks of mob wives and gun moles. They're the 60 cent special, quote unquote. Cheap, flashy, and strictly poison under the gravy. His partner, he's not so sure. He's not as rigid about it. And Forbes seems like he's a little older, so is this attitude possibly the result of greater life experience? Or is it just that he's maybe more corruptible or even just lazy? To me, it read more as been around a little bit more and... He's got a family life, we know, so it seems like he's seen a little bit more of the world and a little bit more of humanity, possibly the better side. How you can make not such a great decision, but not because you're a scumbag. But also it's Chicago. What the heck do they expect? (laughs) What are your choices? I like that you mentioned that because I encourage everyone to look for the little touches to garner a greater appreciation for this film throughout. There are little things that happen that go almost unnoticed, but add considerably to the vibe and your understanding of this world they're building, even just subconsciously. For example, one of my favorites, when they pull up here to her apartment to pick her up, he instructs the cabbie, douse your lights. Okay, perfectly sensible. Don't want to draw attention. But in the margin of the screen... As they're getting out to go get her, you can see that the cabbie puts up his collar and shrinks down in his seat a little as if by instinct, even the bit players know the deal here. And that for me continues to the first time that we see Marie Windsor as Mrs. Neal. She's in partial shadow and she does a wonderful hair flip. Almost like a Gilda flourish. Yeah, as in, who the hell are you? (laughs) And she's mad and sassy, defying everybody playing this record loudly when she shouldn't be. Well, during this rendezvous to pick her up, everything is about tension. Things are contentious between the three of them. Then you get that Dutch angle on the pearls dropping to the floor. So it's tipping its hand a little bit, that shit's about to get real. And then that pans down to a shadowy figure in the lower hall. And so you have all these neat touches that imply so much. Pearls on a cheap string. The fur collar on the gunman's coat. That says a lot. The clothesline in the yard. It's a masterclass in low-budget ways to make your film more visually interesting and conveying information in the little details at the same time. And also comparing and contrasting again with Laura. In this case, 
in this film, there's almost no music. It's a big difference. You go from this instantly recognizable iconic theme in our previous film to just a couple of instances of Marie Windsor, like you mentioned, listening to records providing the diegetic music. Yeah, there's no score to speak of. It's the train sounds. It's the gramophones and popular music. So I think both of them played with music in an interesting way. I also like what the music keys off here because it signals bad things to come. Yeah, and then you have everything else that accompanies the action providing this dramatic punctuation. It's all train sounds. And especially check out that nifty cut that matches action and sound when Marie Windsor is filing her nails and that dissolves to these train wheels picking up speed. And speaking of Marie Windsor, she is such a badass. I think I can say that that is one of our most fiercely held shared beliefs, right? Absolutely. And she was a Mormon, no less. (laughs) Crazy to imagine. She says here among one of many fantastic lines, getting killed sort of runs in my family. No one could deliver those bitter bon mots better than she could. She once said, playing heavies is fun, and the parts usually have meatier dialogue to chew on. She weren't kidding. She certainly doesn't do much to dispel Brown's preconceived notions of a certain type of woman, though. Looking over her career here, I see that she really matches McGraw's versatility that you were bringing up, stride for stride, I think. But in this case, if I had to choose, I would flip my preference. I really love her as the femme fatale. I always want her to be bad. The baddest. Because she's the smartest one in the room. She knows all the angles. Do you have a favorite mode as far as Marie Windsor is concerned? I'm right there with you. I actually first came to know her through Murder, She Wrote. So I have very fond memories as a kid of listening to this wonderful voiced woman being so imposing and exciting. Did you know she was once queen of covered wagon days? Wouldn't doubt it. You mentioned that book, Dark City Dames. The others of those women being Jane Greer, Anne Savage, Evelyn Keyes, Audrey Totter, and Colleen Gray. Where do you put Windsor among them? What's the power ranking for the Dark City Dames? There's definitely not a bad one in that bunch for sure. And they were all completely different, which is wonderful. But I gotta put Maria at the top, even though Audrey Totter has a very special place in my heart, as does Colleen Gray. Anne Savage is the one who I think of as being as physically imposing No one had crazier eyes than Anne Savage. And able to use that voice in the same way. But Marie Windsor just stands apart. There's nothing in her that makes me think heart of gold in that same way. And that's not a knock against her. She was gorgeous, intelligent, dramatic. She could be romantic and sexy. She could be scary. She never phoned it in. None of them did. But she was just given a different role to play and she played it better than anyone else could have how about you well just going through them Anne savage she is terrifying as well and she could give you whiplash with her on-screen mood swings jane greer may be the best overall actor in the bunch i think i would argue evelyn keys Mm. in my opinion the thing i like about evelyn keys is that she was always so good at letting her dark side show through that facade in surprising ways She was perfect for the tonal shifts that would come later in the darker, rougher, cheaper period of noir in the early 50s. And she could play L.A. noir really well, I think. Colleen Gray, she's in one of my desert island noirs, Kansas City Confidential, and she was often more the innocent. So she provides a bit of contrast to the rest of the women on this list. But like you, and I think it may be an even harder decision for me, the two I could never hope to decide between are Marie Windsor and Audrey Totter. They are the epitome of the Dark City Dame for me. They don't make films any more fatale than this. They each had those big eyes that didn't seem to miss a trick and could zero in on any weakness like it was blood in the water. They made everything they wore look swanky, even the most threadbare nightgown. With Audrey Totter, I've modeled my life after her for being physically imposing and super tiny. And you did not want to be on the business end of those barbed tongues. They could verbally rip you to shreds and make you thank them for it in the process. They were perfection. And so, to reiterate, Windsor is perfect to deliver this dialogue that is so sharp and pitiless. 
in the opening scene that we did, she characterizes Brown and Forbes as an old man who walks right into it and a weeper, which I love. She takes that little beat before she says weeper to turn and focus on him to just dig it in a little bit deeper. And this is just minutes after his partner has been killed, taking a bullet that should have been meant for him. And Brown is going to remind her of that over and over and over. And he wastes no time giving it right back to her here. She is just a COD package, he tells her. If they kill me, it's just a job. You mean nothing. Later, she has this great line about how this train's headed for the cemetery. This may be one of the most quotable noir of all time. For sure. And she also employs that whole femme fatale arsenal. Insulting him one second and then in practically the same breath attempting to seduce him. Unfortunately for her, he is the exact opposite of Dana Andrews' obsessive cop in Laura. Can you picture this Charles McGraw bringing in a murder suspect for interrogation just because he wants to find out if she likes him, likes him? Uh, Not at all. I think he just would have rubbed up against her. Uh, No, that is against the code. Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Guys with codes aren't into fraudage. Thank you very much. (laughs) I forgot that that was the term for it. Now, you made reference to this earlier, the speed at which this moves. As much as I love slow cinema, and it's one of my favorite things in the world, stuff like this really makes me wish that every movie was 71 minutes long. This velocity also helps, especially with lesser examples than this, to plaster over plot holes or other deficiencies that you might look further into if the film was more leisurely paced. The gangsters don't know, for example, what their longtime associate's wife looks like? Don't think too much about it. We've got a train to catch. And the cops don't know what she's supposed to look like before they hook up with her either, which also seems odd. And the fact that he leaves her on her own to get to the train seems also kind of weird, but okay. But who cares? Let's get on the train. All aboard. Well, in what is now a foregone conclusion, but still seems incredibly frightening to me, the assassins are on the train. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, the bad guys, they are on to McGraw from the jump. And I think one thing they don't touch on much is how these guys are always one step ahead of him. It really is a nice noirish touch to me. It requires that the viewer put it together and really access the dark side of themselves subconsciously. To get this, you have to understand that corruption is rampant and everyone has their price. What I mean specifically is that these guys couldn't have had such precise information without someone on the inside. They don't outline this for you in any detail, but you have to confront and accept the idea that not all cops are as pure of heart as McGraw and would in fact sell out one of their own. This is just the way of things. This is what being immersed in the noir world does to your sensibilities. Welcome to the dark end of the street. Because think of how many of these stories that we've watched where the cop and the gangster have grown up together and they've gone on these different paths. Or the cop's dad is corrupt. Or on and on and on. Brown has a few tricks up his sleeve too, though, so he's not at a total disadvantage. That's a nice move, for instance, with the baggage cart in motion that he uses to give them the slip. But Brown and Mrs. Neal, overall, they're still at a huge disadvantage. The story puts the bad guys right next to them right away, in the same room even. It's insane how much they're constantly brushing up against each other, tangling, tracking each other. There's nowhere to go. They're on a train. Yeah, Kemp, one of the bad guys, he cons the conductor into literally letting him into Brown's compartment before the thing even leaves the station. It's a move that really intensifies the traditional game of cat and mouse that we usually see. I feel like, whoa, hang on, give me a minute. We just got on board. And it's less about editing here and more about these tracking shots and using the space itself, the window reflections, for instance, that will come into play later on as well. And I put that down to Fleischer. This was one of the first uses of handheld camera, by the way. And we're going to see an amazing instance of that in a bit. And it just keeps going on. It never lets up. Kemp comes up empty in his search, But his partner, Yost, invites himself into Brown's compartment later to see if he can make any headway. They want this list of names that she's going to deliver to the grand jury in Los Angeles, and they are willing to pay a pretty penny for it. It would be enough to set Brown up for a good long while, the equivalent of several years of his cop salary, but he rejects their offer. These close quarters negotiations, they are really something else. 
Usually it's something you see in a Western, I feel like, heading toward the inevitable showdown. Gangsters are often portrayed as more cowardly, shooting you from a distance or getting you while your back is turned. It's a very Western thing to sit down and look across the table at the guy, straighten his eyes and tell him, here's the deal. What's terrifying to me, what's so tense here, is that he comes in without a weapon. And the question is just, how much? Because his argument for having Brown take the bribe is that we'll get her anyway, so why not? And the further implication, that he's a dead man anyway. That's interesting because I had an inverse reaction to what was happening there. Because when he says as he's leaving, you'll find me when you make up your mind. You're damn right he will. Yost is the dead man is how I was reading that. Oh, okay. Now, instead of just bumping him off and going about their business, do you read this as them affording Brown a grudging measure of respect due to his reputation as an upright guy? Or is it more a case that we think we're so untouchable that we can brazenly conduct our business right out in the open? That's what I think. And I feel like it's also a measure of kind of rubbing his nose in it that he doesn't have that much power, essentially, because in another film, we would expect him to arrest these people. But that doesn't happen. Also in another film, though, they wouldn't even bother to make the offer. They would just take what they wanted. There's just a different level of drama here. There's so much more to explore in a 71-minute film. Yeah, I said earlier that this for me is a perfect noir. There's not a single wasted motion in this thing. As things go on here, Brown meets a dame in the bar car. Then there's the fat guy in the hall. It's giving us all of our players a little bit at a time. I love the introduction of the fat man because first he seems to be just a minor diversion, but then becomes this major player as the film goes on. And speaking of the way that noir affects you, I suspect every single character that gets introduced to us here. How about you? For sure. Can you blame me, though, after that shot of the fat guy in the hallway with the lights flashing across his face? It looks like he's one bad day away from needing an exorcist. It's really a great bit of sinister misdirection. Well, speaking of suspecting everybody, let's talk about that other dame for just a second, the blonde. And we've got these two women now, the light and the dark. And again, watch the movie before you listen to this because you want to see what happens in the way that it unfolds. But I think it's so interesting coming back to this now, watching it again for the I'd have second, third, fourth time, that the two women are played off each other physically. They're both taller. They have basically the same hairstyle, which I don't think was just a reflection of the time. I think it was on purpose. Marie Windsor has the longer, more luxurious cut. The other woman, the blonde, the sort of goody-goody a little bit, who turns out to be more interesting, hers is shorter and more matter-of-fact. Their costuming is also the same. They're wearing the same types of things, but with subtle differences. And it also kind of reminds me of Laura again a bit. It's this idea of image and reality. Not a doppelganger exactly, but two sides of the same coin, maybe. Closer than we think. Okay, as if this isn't already ticking all my boxes, like we said, let's talk about this train setting. I am a sucker for this stuff. I would live in a Pullman car if it was possible. Anywhere we travel, we always try to work train trips into our itinerary, whether that's moving from point A to point B or just excursion trains. Do you like this setting as much as I do? No one could like this setting <laughs> as much as you do, but I really do like it. I love the tight quarters here, the use of the corridors, the handheld, like I mentioned. It is so incredibly tight, even for a B-movie, even for a noir. It reminds me in that sort of way of The Hitchhiker that we covered back in episode 103 because it went the other way, filmed in the desert, but with those tight quarters in the car. Both feeling like such interesting landmarks in the use of setting and space. Yeah, this claustrophobic setting, it really enhances this feeling of ever-encroaching danger. In this case, with the antagonist bringing it right into your cabin. You make a great point. Landscape is such an important component to my favorite films noir. You think about something like the setup and how crucial the gym and the locker room are, the sounds, the smells with Robert Ryan. You're in the belly of this cavernous building with him like you've been chewed up and swallowed. 
And then in Panic in the Streets, another one of my favorites, you have Jack Palance crawling around under the wharf like he is a literal plague-carrying rat. It just shows you how your world can be so reduced. Yeah, and even in the other examples we mentioned, New York City, it has its dark, narrow alleys. Los Angeles has its palm trees with their false promises of sun-drenched pleasures, as you like to pronounce now. (laughs) Trains have their own signature, though, and they add that mystery and danger. For one, it's literally full of hiding places, a train. There are sleeping berths, closed compartments, moving between cars, and it also has this connotation of relentless forward motion. No matter what is happening, no matter what you try to do to put it off, nothing can stop this from hurtling toward the conclusion. You get why Brown has lost his appetite. Yeah. Dealing with the fact that fate is unstoppable doesn't really go with your pimento cheese sandwich most of the time. And this also plays into the car that's keeping pace with the train on the outside, like they're trying to outrun their own shadow and the looming threat of their inevitable convergence. One thing that I think isn't addressed very often with stuff like this. This is public transportation. You are carrying on this operation surrounded by people. They're most likely just innocent bystanders that could prove to either be a hindrance or collateral damage, but some of them could be adversaries and you just don't know, or in this case, you pretty well know. And then plus for some of us, at least trains, they really add an unmistakable element of romance, nostalgia, whatever you want to call it. It's a setting that completely captures my imagination. And in this in particular, another element that I really enjoy that is a byproduct of this train setting is how Brown and Kemp especially each catch the other in these unguarded moments, doing ordinary things like packing a suitcase or shaving or brushing their teeth instead of being super cops or unerring assassins every second of the day. They still have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. It's unlike a lot of noir in the sense that these moments make the characters feel human and vulnerable in a different way than we're used to. It makes them more relatable, I think, and specifically pitiable, I feel like, on both sides even. It feels banal, and it makes it really easy to grasp how dangers may be lurking anywhere. We're just trying to get on with breakfast or tying our shoes, and someone wants to kill us on this train. And also part of just a larger machine, each of them a cog in their own way and completely dispensable. While we're at it, I want to throw a wrench in that machine and give a shout out to that kid, Tommy, for never shutting up. And being incredibly loud and (laughs) shrill while he's not shutting up. That little scrapper is going to get his mom killed if anybody does. Don't blame the cops. Blame this kid. He's like Opie if Opie needed Ritalin. He's like Dick Van Dyke's kid in the Dick Van Dyke show. (laughs) Richie, yeah, terrible. Well, at one of these train stops at one point, in between dealing with this kid, Brown is sending a telegram. And he changes the wire that he's sending to remove Yost's name from the suspect list. Now, are we supposed to doubt his integrity? Did they get to him with this offer? Did you wonder about him for a moment? Another shout out for just a second before I answer that, even when they get off the train, it's somehow more tense because there's still no escape. But anyway, I think I read that differently. I didn't think about it in that same way. First, I was thinking, did he mark his name off because he knows that Yost has gotten off the train and isn't actually a player in this particular leg of the action? Or maybe he's thinking, oh, Yost is already dead or... I'm going to take the opportunity to kill him if I can. I'm going to have to watch it again. Well, I would say it's noir. Nothing is surprising, ultimately, and everyone has their price, except for Charles McGraw. So now the gangsters think that Mrs. Sinclair, Jacqueline White, is actually Mrs. Neal, and things are getting a little dangerous here for our innocent bystanders. But a case of mistaken identity is a solution for Mrs. Neal, and a legitimate fear for Brown Ultimately, she's trying anything to get him to budge off of his righteous and noble position, but nothing doing, lady. And there's a great exchange here about all of that, which ends with this bit about, you make me sick to my stomach. Well, be sure to use your own sink. Yeah, that's great. He may not even know why, but his gut instinct about Marie Windsor is right. She is a rat trying to entice him, basically, to compromise himself and his principles. And not even for her own self-preservation or enrichment. It's because it's a work assignment. Because when we look at both of these women now, 
They're either play acting or they're hiding, both of them. Because Marie Windsor, as Mrs. Neal, is actually an internal affairs cop setting out, at least in part, to see if she can trap Brown into taking a bribe and exposing corruption in the department. So then, if we reflect back on everything that she's done up to this point, do we think her manner, this aggression, this meanness, this saltiness is a big put on? Is she egging him on by being so repulsive that he would take that bribe and essentially allow her to be murdered? I don't know that it's that well thought out. I think she is specifically playing what she thinks a gangster's wife should be. It's a cop's idea of what a gangster's wife is. Got it. But I do want to say, lady, you're a bum for this. <laughs> Brown is incorruptible. Did I say that I admire a man with a code? And if she realized that, I don't think she would set out to be the person that would make him just give her over to them because he's just simply never going to do it. She and the internal affairs department, they're the ones that are thinking small. They're the ones that are giving more of themselves away, thinking that this is going to work on him than anything. I completely disagree. I think it was a big put on, and I think the <laughs> overall goal was to get that little kid killed. And whatever happens in the crossfire happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I think she would have split the money with Brown and saved the real Mrs. Neal and then had a big hero's parade. No, I think you give her too much credit. <laughs> she would have taken that money and taken it on the lamb. We do have a direct conflict here, though, that happens with this inevitable fight that Brown has with Kemp in the train's washroom. It is so nicely choreographed. This was all filmed on sound stages at RKO, but they do a great job conveying that they are trapped together in these cramped spaces. It's also different in a lot of what you're going to see because it's bloody. You actually see blood, which it sounds strange to say you didn't see a lot of that at that time. It's physical and it feels real. Something else you didn't see a lot of at that time, you already mentioned it, the handheld camera. That wasn't a common practice, so this has a more immediate feel than its contemporaries. You have all these great low angles that make both men seem more imposing, and you often can't get both guys in the frame at the same time. And it's shot so tight that there is no doubt that these are our main actors, not stunt doubles, so it helps suspend your disbelief that much more. And I don't know about you, but in the aftermath of this, I was waiting for McGraw to get sapped from behind in that frame where it's just him and you have Kemp on one side just out of the picture and then the fat man behind Brown on the other side. So there's still this nagging feeling just when an ally arrives. It's really a testament to the pervasiveness of the dirty noir atmosphere. You truly never know who you can trust or how far the corruption goes. And I guess you really can't blame me for feeling that way because more and more baddies keep showing up. You've got Denzel, whom we've been hearing about from the bad guys on and off for a while now. He turns out to be our fur-collared killer, and he's here to straighten things out. Can we talk about how sickly sinister a trademark he has, how he fancies himself this dandy? It reminds me a little bit, if it were another film, Sam Jaffe, I think, would have mm. played that part. Yeah, all he's missing is that little pencil-thin mustache, essentially. Definitely. He's even flashy about it. And what this says to me, he is so good at killing that it has proven to be a pathway to luxury for him. That fur collar might as well be dripping with blood. Now, when they catch Marie Windsor in her compartment, she makes a play for her gun and gets shot for the trouble. But it's the old switcheroo. Well, before that, though, just want to mention something quickly. As she dies, that's what triggers the gramophone to go <laughs> off again. Oh, it is eerie. But the big switcheroo, she was a cop the whole time, and Blondie is the Hood's wife. Can I say again what a shitty move it is to put internal affairs onto this guy, especially with all the pressure from this dangerous assignment? Doesn't he have enough to contend with right now? Because when I was first watching this, I thought in my kind of faded memory, that really she was trying to be a decoy. So they were going to set her up as really the hero cop. The person who was going to take over this super dangerous assignment to help keep this other woman safe. But they didn't go down that road. Yeah, I almost feel like, fine, they deserve this happening to her. 
if they hadn't been trying to screw him over from the beginning, no one would have gotten hurt. In the meantime, like you say, will the real Mrs. Neal please stand up? Good luck for anybody trying to lay low with that kid in tow. Taking a page from your Marie Windsor character sheet, maybe he could just annoy the killers into going away. A little bit of the Ransom of Red Chief by O. Henry kind of a twist. Annoy the kidnapper so much that they give you back. But to compare this just for a moment again with Laura, thinking about how Laura herself was this created image, and then this film continues to play with that sense of identity in an ingenious way. And one of those ways, actually, now that you bring it up, I love this stylistic touch of how often reflections come into play and how they use that to denote certain specific things about identity. And specifically here, bringing about the end for the killers. There's some improv here, playing for time with the payoff list and using the train that comes alongside to see the reflection into Mrs. Neal's compartment where she's trapped by the killer. I still don't quite know how he pulls this off with the mirror over the sink and aligning his shot, but he kills the bad guy. He got top marks on the geometry section of the sergeant's exam, obviously. I guess so. Yeah, if you need to take aim at the bad guy in the next room, you use the reflection in the window to calculate your angle. Reflections were also handy for sidestepping technical filmmaking limitations, too. If you're in such close quarters and you can't shoot a specific close-up, shoot a close-up of the reflection in the window. Hopefully this never happens in our life, because I'm just going to keep shooting through the door and hope <laughs> that I hit the right person. And there's also, obviously, the symbolism of mirrors and reflections equaling duplicity because so many people in Brown's orbit aren't who they initially let on. It's practically world on a wire up in here. And speaking of being through the looking glass, the real mobster's wife has now turned McGraw's notions on their head about what kind of woman he expected to find. Sometimes you get in over your head. Sometimes you don't have all the information. Sometimes you're just fooled. The important thing is is that you do what's right when the scales fall from your eyes, and she does. I've got one tiny bone to pick here. Okay. So they've arrived in L.A. Mrs. Neal decides she's done hiding. She's going to walk, not run anymore. Which, here's my bone to pick. It now then seems like they've needlessly lost two police people for all of this, but whatever, it's still great. Well, she didn't walk from Chicago. <laughs> It's just a couple blocks. <laughs> I like it because she is demonstrating for me and to McGraw here with her desire to walk instead of taking the car. She's not crouching like a coward or a criminal. She is no longer associated with that way of life, even tangentially. She has a code too. I think you like it because they're both going to do it the hard way. <laughs> exactly. Well, the end. And that was a great ride. Yeah. This is essential film noir for me. This is Mount Rushmore stuff. It inspired a remake, I should mention, in 1990 with Gene Hackman, but it's a remake pretty much in name and the most basic premise elements only. Don't settle for less than this original. Speaking of don't settle for less, what do you have for us for further viewing here? I picked another original. I picked Woman on the Run from 1950, from the year that our film was actually made. Directed by Norman Foster with Anne Sheridan and Dennis O'Keefe about a woman who goes looking for her estranged husband after he goes into hiding after witnessing a murder. Now, Anne Sheridan unofficially produced this film, which is a big deal, and it was largely shot on location in San Francisco, another great place for noir. And it feels like something that was definitely a labor of love. And because of its unique nature, driven by and centered around a woman in another unique role of a non-loving wife who was specifically also not a femme fatale, that it was largely forgotten for a long time. And we can thank the awesome Film Noir Foundation for not letting it get forgotten permanently. Yeah, leading up to this, I was not the biggest Anne Sheridan fan. I'm just kind of lukewarm on her prior to this. That may be because I just dislike her so much, or I should say the character so much in The Man Who Came to Dinner. But this really did change the way I thought about her and her contributions to film and how important a figure she was for sticking to it to do whatever it took to get this thing made. And it is a great film noir example. So how about you? 
Well, my recommendation this time is Bodyguard from 1948, and that is again directed by Fleischer, but this time with volatile leading man Lawrence Tierney and Priscilla Lane. It's about a tough guy LAPD homicide detective who gets booted from the force for cutting corners on little things like search warrants or due process. Beating up suspects, probably. Uh, More like his superiors, actually, because that's how he also gets slapped with a case of insubordination and finally kicked off the force. It's got Lawrence Tierney's name all over it already, obviously. He then gets a job as a bodyguard, gets framed for murder, and has to think, work, and punch his way out of this trouble. I recommend it mainly because it's good to get an idea of where Fleischer was starting from. It's one of his earliest efforts, and you can occasionally see flashes of what he would later become. He keeps the action even more economical. This one is only 62 minutes. And it is very definitely to the, let's say, cost-effective end of the noir spectrum. It's the kind of thing that you would cut your teeth on, and RKO, if you did a good job with it, would give you another bigger property. It's also a rare chance to see Lawrence Tierney as a good guy, like Charles McGraw is in this. Don't confuse that with nice guy, I should clarify. It's not the five-star experience that I would consider the narrow margin, but it's really intriguing to see how good Fleischer got and making these kinds of movies in just a couple of years. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Woman on the Run and Bodyguard. And that brings us to the end of episode 131. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We're on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films Podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Andy Wolverton, Keith Rich, Brian Sauer, Darcy Shaw, Michael Cannon, James Stobie, and Grindhouse Dave. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thanks again to another nice anonymous person who recently left us a five-star rating on iTunes. We're very grateful for that. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Magic Lantern.